So we will wait and hopefully there is a way to uh, get rid of the beginning part of this conversation where most of it was silent. So um, in advance, thank you for joining us here on the Press On podcast where we discuss ways that we can move forward as a society and toward a better world. I am very excited for this episode where I will be getting the opportunity to talk to Dan Press. Um, we are scheduled to start in one minute here. We will see how that works. This is one of the favorite, one of my favorite things to do actually is uh, talk to people on this podcast specifically. It's a unique group of people who I've conversed with so far who know so much and getting the chance through these conversations, it's, it's not just allowing the uh, yeah it's it's not just about allowing other people to hear what's going on in the world but in addition it's about an opportunity for me to learn there's certainly a the stage is sort of set to have meaningful dialogue and people want to share with others, not just me, um, which makes the conversation particularly insightful, particularly um, important. And I, I love that part of this. Um, as Good Hey, Dan, how are you? I'm okay. It's beautiful, crisp fall morning here. Yeah, same here. Um, you want to just get started? Sure. All right. So I'm going to start by, I'll, I'll cut up to now. Um, I'll start by reading that little piece of, uh, you know, the intro that I wrote and mm -hmm. then continue on the conversation from there. Great. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Press On, where we discuss ways to move toward a more sustainable planet and a better future for everyone throughout society. Elijah Cummings passed away last Thursday morning at the age of 68. He was an amazing man who spent his entire life fighting for those who were marginalized and voiceless in our society. He listened to Martin Luther King Jr. as a boy and grew up to embody those principles and faithfully, respectfully work toward equity and justice. This was going to be his last term in Congress, even if he was still alive. In his role as the chairman of the House Oversight and Reform Committee, he not only helped lead toward impeachment proceedings of President Trump, but was also a champion of the trauma-informed movement. On July 11th, Chairman Cummings held a hearing called Identifying, Preventing, and Treating Childhood Trauma a pervasive public health issue that needs greater federal attention. During that meeting, Chairman Cummings shared a personal anecdote from his own childhood. From kindergarten until sixth grade, he had been placed in a special education classroom and was told he would never read or write. He reminded everyone that it's not the deed we do to the children, it's the memory. He was not the only person at that meeting who vulnerably shared they had faced during childhood that day. However, he is the one who created the platform for one of the most powerful legislative hearings in recent memory. As our guest on today's episode of Press On, Dan Press, has said since that meeting, it is the only time in his memory where those presenting received a standing ovation from members of Congress. Dan Press is the pro bono advisor for the Campaign for Trauma-Informed Policy and Practice, also referred to as CTIP. For over 40 years, Dan has provided legal and Washington representation assistance to Native American tribes, Native American organizations, and companies doing business with tribes. Welcome to the podcast, and thank you for joining me today, Dan. Thank you, Jesse. Glad Absolutely. to be here. 
Um, so you were actually at the meeting. Um, unfortunately, I was in Philadelphia at the time. So can you just share some of the work you and Chairman Cummings did together? Um, I, I don't want to say that we did it together. This really was, the, 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 rather than meeting, the right term is hearing. Uh, this was really Chairman uh, Cummings' inspiration and work. Um, he represents Baltimore, and as we all know from reading the paper, Baltimore uh, has had huge social and health and law enforcement problems. And he learned about ACEs and realized what a difference it could make, trauma-informed programs could make for the city of Baltimore. So he decided, despite all of the other pressing issues on his plate, that he was going to focus <coughs> some of the time of the oversight committee on addressing trauma. Interestingly, a lot of people say, well, the oversight committee doesn't have jurisdiction uh, over the trauma-related issues that belongs in the education committee or the uh, health subcommittee. Uh, he didn't let that bother him. Uh, the oversight committee has as broad a mandate as, as the chairman wants to give it. Uh, and the first thing he did was go out and hire uh, somebody from Baltimore um, to be his staff person to focus strictly on trauma. And that itself is an enormous commitment because uh, staff uh, are all, um, they're all overworked. Most of them have multiple responsibilities, but he wanted somebody focusing uh, just on trauma. Uh, I had the opportunity, thanks to Christine Bethel up at Johns Hopkins, to meet the staff person, uh, Michael Cagnolia, uh, very early on after he got hired and has uh, have worked with him in helping him try to develop a, a path forward on trauma. Uh, the hearing on July 11th, was extraordinary for a number of reasons. First, the ACE study is now 20 years old, and it's the first time any congressional committee devoted a hearing <laughs> to ACEs and trauma. In fact, until two or three years ago, you never heard the word trauma or ACEs on, uh, on the Hill. Mm -hmm. So uh, holding this hearing by itself was a huge step forward. Um, the other th Part that was remarkable. This first panel was composed of four uh, trauma survivors, all of whom are now running organizations to help fellow survivors, whether it's uh, sexual abuse or parental abuse or PTSD in the military or mm. uh, gun violence. And each one of them uh, talked about their own personal experience, very frankly, very honestly. Uh, and then talked about their work they're doing to try and help others like them. And when uh, Congressman Chairman Cummings uh, opened the floor for questions, there were questions from both the Republican and, and, and Democratic side. And then when the questions were finished, he did what any chairman does. He thanked the panel and dismissed them, and they got up to leave. And as they did so, every congressperson in the room, and there might, must have been 20 or 30 of them, stood up and gave the panel a standing ovation. Wow. Uh, and nobody can remember that ever happening. I've got colleagues who've been involved, either worked on the Hill or been uh, lobbying for 40 years, and nobody can remember anything even close to that, uh, which shows you how deeply the emotional impact of, of trauma and people trying to fight it can have. Uh, the third thing that was remarkable about the hearing is that in this day of partisanship, the uh, you couldn't tell from the questions who was a Democrat and who was a Republican. Uh, it's an issue that seemed to resonate with members of both parties. Uh, ironically, uh, we had in the hearing room, members of what's called the squads, the four freshmen, very 
mm -hmm. uh, far left uh, congresswomen, and we had members of the Freedom Caucus, the far right group. And you couldn't tell from the questions who was which. They all were interested in digging into uh, what trauma, uh, what causes trauma, how do you solve it, uh, the personal experiences of of the witnesses. And a lot of the congressmen talked about their own personal experience. So uh, it's one of the few bipartisan hearings that I've been aware of in, in the last couple of years. So it was remarkable. Um, the question and, and the one I'm working with uh, Chairman Cummings staff now is where do you go from here? And when Congress, Chairman Cummings first hired his staffers, uh, he's now hired a second one. Uh, his goal was he wanted to do something, Bill, some big, something that would really make a difference in Baltimore and elsewhere. And we talked about a comprehensive trauma-informed initiative that would focus on what I consider the five, five or six um, main areas um, that, are you still there? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, a call came in. Um, five hmm. or six big issues that would need to be uh, the source of congressional action if, if we're really going to make a difference on trauma. And you know, one of the goals we've kicked around is, well, let's reduce trauma by 50% in 10 years. Uh, let's reduce ACEs by 50%. Um, so the the six components of a trauma-informed bill that we've outlined, and people could come up with more or less. Uh, one is primary prevention, uh, helping parents be better parents. Uh, secondly is early identification, the kind of work that Dr. Nadine Burke Harris has implemented, where pediatricians are trained to identify young patients who are showing signs of trauma, and then partnering with behavioral health experts to help not just the kid, but the parents, the two-gen approach. A third is resilience, helping those who've suffered trauma to learn how to overcome the effects mm -hmm. of trauma. And um, we know how effective that can be, how you can uh, uh, help kids who are dysregulating to get back into into regulation, uh, get their stress hormones back in. Um, I just heard an incredible presentation by a young counselor at a school in a very poor neighborhood in Fort Worth, Texas, and they uh, implemented programs to help kids deal with their trauma, meditation and talking circles and uh, yoga and fit fidget toys. And they were able to reduce the number of suspensions in that school from 890 a year to 19, like a 98% reduction in suspension. So we know how to do resilience. And then finally, we need to know how to, we need the fourth category is uh, treatment, making sure those who have already been impacted by trauma, like people with uh, opioid use disorder are given trauma-informed <coughs> therapies so that we're not only dealing with their opiate problem, but we're also dealing with the underlying trauma that most likely caused them to become addicted. And then we need the federal government to become trauma-informed. We need to promote a trauma-informed workplace. And we need, <clears throat> we need to help, and most importantly, in my mind, we need to help local communities develop trauma-informed coalitions. So working with Congress, uh, Congressman Cummings' staff, we laid out that kind of big picture. <clears throat> but after uh, talking to the various uh, congressional committees, uh, the message came back two things. One is a large bill like that would uh, require action by multiple committees, the Education Committee and uh, the Health Subcommittee and the uh, Judicial Subcommittee. And it would just be very hard to get them lined up and particularly with only a few months left uh, in this year and very, very few congressional days left and next year being an election year, uh, nobody thought a big bill could get through. So while Congressman Cummings 
still held on to the very end, the, the hope of doing something big. Uh, he recognized that it really was unlikely uh, that it could happen in, in the, this Congress, which ends in January 2021. So um, we're talking to uh, Congressman Cummings' staff about a couple of things. One is they're working on some small bills just to get a foot in the door to lay the groundwork for future work, like promoting uh, research by NIH um, uh, to, to increase uh, our knowledge of trauma, uh, better data collection by CDC. So it sounds like from the Congress, Congress's point of view, the next year and a quarter, um, they're going to be devoted to laying the groundwork and not doing anything big. But in the meantime, uh, a second goal of, of coming staffers and also of CTIP is to educate the Congress to use this time as a, a vehicle for educating them. Uh, two, three years ago, I'd go up at the hill and I'd say ACEs and nobody knew what I was talking about. Uh, today, uh, it seems like most of the staff up there now have learned about it and are very much interested in it, but it's not clear that the Congress people, the senators and the, and the representatives have learned about it. So we think there needs to be a, a real strenuous effort to educate the members of Congress themselves so that they can take the lead in promoting trauma-informed programs. So to answer your, the long answer to your question, uh, the short answer is uh, this is a new issue for Congress as uh, one would expect. It's going to take a lot of searching, a lot of experimentation, a lot of one step forward, one step back, hopefully two steps forward and one step back uh, to come up with uh, to come up with the right strategy. Uh, and the second question, of course, is with uh, Chairman Cummings passing, uh, will this issue remain a priority for his successor? And it's too soon for, to ask that question. So uh, the staff is still moving ahead, but a lot of question marks in the future as to how his legacy gets carried forward in the in the issue of trauma. Uh, we're just going to have to wait and see. Sure. I mean, I'm generally an optimistic person, so I'm hopeful that, um, you know, the, the Congress people who were there on that day especially and perhaps have dealt with Chairman Cummings outside of that July 11th hearing uh, recognize how important it is and in his honor and in his legacy sort of carry it out. But like I said before that, I optimistic so there are multiple other ways uh, that that could go um, I am curious uh, so what within the circle of mental health care providers there there is and mental health like researchers there's some hesitancy to use aces as the like building block for this movement um, However, there is something so powerful about the Adverse Childhood Experiences study because it is actually scientific. It's quantifiable. It's not so much, you know, just telling people stories about <laughs> which are very important to hear, but we can put actual numbers to the costs of ACEs because it is somewhat finite. It is a controlled subset that we can sort of track and see how those behaviors kind of manifest over time. So in your words, uh, what's the importance of not only relying on the ACEs study, but of using ACEs to get into the ears of Congress people so that way they become more interested in trauma, trauma-informed care, and sort of the whole movement overall? Yeah. Uh you really need to bifurcate the issue. And I think there's been a, a mistake in, in merging two different things. One is how you educate. The other is how you legislate. Uh, and I know in the legislation that I've been involved in drafting, uh, 
when we put in language to provide primary prevention or resilience, it's not limited just to people with ACEs. It's, it's for anybody who suffered trauma in its broadest sense. However, when trying to educate and trying to evaluate and trying to track, the ACEs information is so powerful. First of all, as you indicated, it's a relatively simple concept to get across. Here's, here's what goes in, you know, child abuse and, and the other nine ACEs, and here's what comes out, substance abuse and alcohol abuse and suicide and diabetes. Um, it's a very easy story to tell. And when you're up in Congress, you don't have a lot of time usually when talking to staff or Congress people. So it's something that just makes a dramatic impact on people. Secondly, uh, you need to provide data. There's a, uh, a saying on the Hill that Congress people like stories, staff like data. <laughs> and the data that's been collected today up to now is all ACE related. CDC has uh, an initiative with the states to collect ACE data, not mm -hmm. trauma data, but ACE data. So if you want to be able to provide data to, to Congress people or, or local governments, the data you have is ACEs. Uh, and third, going forward, if you want to measure success, again, what CDC is measuring is ACEs. So if you want to show progress, let's say that, that your legislation is producing significant results, you have to do it in terms of the reduction in the number of ACEs, uh, not in trauma. So your, your legislation and the services you're providing are all addressing trauma in its broadest sense but when you're educating and when you're measuring and when you're evaluating and when you're showing success, uh, ACEs is the only thing that right now is, is being measured and it's the easiest concept to get across. It doesn't mean we're ignoring the other forms of trauma. I don't think they're that important. Uh, people say that the 10 questions clearly aren't complete and we all agree with that, but it doesn't make a difference. They've proven to be amazing predictors of the larger field of trauma. And so you're not really leaving out um, people who, who suffer trauma if, if you're using that as a measure. And, and secondly, um, it's, uh, uh, it, it's really just being used for the purpose of, of educating the measuring, not for, for programs for treating right and i think that you know the one thing that i've kind of been harping on is that this is a space to get our foot in the door our, our foot being the trauma-informed movement to provide more resources so that way hopefully one day we can sort of define trauma more broadly in the way that aces have been defined to this point um, but like we've discussed, and I would be interested in hearing more, given your insight and your experience on the Hill, you know, you have to start with where the legislators are. Um, if they're going to pass a bill, they have to understand what they're saying. And so, you know, how can starting with this big vision statement that we're working on, and we'll dive more into that later on but how can that sort of over time evolve from just ACEs to trauma more broadly? And how can using ACEs empower more academic research, more funding to go toward research to show the effects of trauma beyond just the 10 ACE categories of abuse, neglect, and dysfunction? Yeah, I'm not sure I'm the right person to answer the second question, but as far as the first question goes, um, I think you nailed it. Uh, you, you watch Congress over the years, they always put their toe in the water and then a second toe and then eventually they're up to their knees and then they're up to their shoulders. Uh, we believe trauma programs can save a lot of money uh, as well as saving a lot of lives, but we don't 
have proof of that. And uh, so we need to start small. We need to have programs that produce results. And then we need to build on those results to keep uh, expanding the, the area of programs. Um, so uh, we need uh, <coughs> we need to start with the low hanging fruit, produce some results, produce some savings, and then um, show that it's worth expanding. You know, I, one of the issues that keeps coming up is we know that the social determinants of health housing and uh, discrimination and uh, poor neighborhoods and, and gunfire all contribute to trauma. And that's absolutely true. But trying to solve those problems is a huge, huge undertaking involving a huge amount of money. And we're not going to get Congress to take that on based on ACE uh, or trauma science. Uh, right now. I mean, they all know that's a problem. Uh, but what they need to see is how trauma-informed approaches can make a difference in small areas. And with that, keep building until they're willing to put uh, the kind of resources into attacking the much larger issues that are the cause of uh, trauma. But let's start with the ones that are relatively, and I say relatively, uh, simple and straightforward, like improving parent parenting or having every school in the country implement resilience programs to reduce suspension. So those, those are discrete, relatively inexpensive steps that can produce huge results and then use the momentum created by those results to go after the much larger issues. If you try and take the whole the, the larger issue right now, uh, Congress will choke on it. It's just too big for them to swallow. Yeah. So so we need to start with ACEs. We need to start with the bird in the hand. And, uh, and over the time, uh, expand, uh, make you know, the ripples keep going out. But you need to you need to build on successes. So you need to start relatively small, produce some small successes, and then gradually build on those. Sure. And I, I think that just to say, you know, my, my master's is in educational leadership, so I'm all about starting in the education system. I also think that it's important to begin with young people whose brains are still developing. Um, not that we don't want to help everybody, we do. Uh, but again, it's about getting our foot in the water. You, you spoke about a school in Texas where there was a 98% reduction in suspensions. And just to kind of expand upon that, there was a school out in uh, Washington uh, called Lincoln High School that in one year showed an 84% reduction in suspensions and a 40% reduction in expulsions. And then out where, closer to where I am in Eastern York County, Pennsylvania, there was a school that saw in one year a reduction in the in the education costs because of special ed uh, placements and out of school placements that school districts ultimately pay for. And because of a different way of viewing the child, there were it, children were dealt with in different ways, which led to remarkable results. And so you know, just to put those two data points out there as well, there's a lot of data around education, as well as a few other, you know, spots where we can kind of start and then move forward from there. Um, and I think you can go ahead. No, I, I just agree with you. I think uh, education is one of those areas you can make a huge impact. Uh, you have a a confined population for five or six hours a day. And we just have so much information. There was an article in the Washington Post a couple of weeks ago about a lawsuit uh, in Fairfax County, one of the richest counties mm -hmm. in the country, right outside of Washington, uh, parents suing the school uh, board because their kids were put in solitary confinement for 700 days over a seven-year period. 
And the school's answer was, well, we had to get them out of the classroom because they were disrupting it. And then I think of this program in Texas, uh, which has shown how you the, the kid was in solitary because he probably had been suffered trauma and his, his stress hormones were high. And we now know how to deal with that problem. It's frustrating to think every day kids are being suspended or expelled. Well, we know that probably 98% of the time it's because they have suffered trauma and they're, they're dysregulating, the stress hormones are high, and we can deal with it. I mean, with, with a very limited amount of money, every school district in the country could reduce suspensions by 98%. We just need to make it happen. So I think the schools are a tremendous opportunity uh, to make a difference and to be able to demonstrate a difference. Being able to go to Congress and say, look, we just reduced suspensions by 98% will have a huge, huge impact. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's, it's again, it's so clear and understandable and dramatic. So yeah, we, we definitely can start with the schools. Yeah. And, and getting to the crux of what trauma informed actually means, you see how the, the paradigm shift from what's wrong with you to what's happened to you opens up a new conversation, even within the child's own head. Uh, particularly in a trauma-impacted student, if they're suspended, what does that tell them? I'm bad. And then what, is that, what behaviors is that going to promote within the, that child? Probably not good behaviors or behaviors that we really, and, and outcomes that we want to see from our children. Uh, as you were speaking, I was remembering when I worked at um, an inner-city public school in Philadelphia, where um, a large portion of the population was special needs and in special education classrooms, there was one day, I mean, speaking to the seclusion practices um, that exist in special education today, there was one day that a girl was having an outburst and it got so bad that she was strapped into, uh, I, I guess that it's a gurney, and put into an ambulance. And I remember asking what happened and they were like, she just couldn't calm down. And I, how is that gonna help her calm down? How is that gonna teach them the regulating skills to be able to self-regulate over time? Um, and just a greater sensitivity to the lived experiences of children. Uh, when you're a child, you don't know everything about life or the world you're still piecing that together on a daily basis and you know when when trauma and adversity exists in your home and in your neighborhood it can do a lot of damage and you were talking about the stress hormones the cortisol increases and how that can you know blunt responses and sort of lead to dissociation or hypervigilance um and you know, I think that there is an incredible opportunity to promote resilience building through <laughs> understanding of ACEs, trauma, et cetera, et cetera. Um, another area, in, including education, that we have some insight into is the healthcare costs associated with trauma. Uh, the World Health Organization, I guess it's pushing two months ago now published a study that said that $1.3 trillion between Europe and North America are spent on adverse childhood experiences. And I, I do think that while that study is tremendous, it does not touch on some of the soft costs, such as missed work and lost potential, that uh, ACEs and trauma can also uh, influence. And so, Given how strong the healthcare debate is in our country today, what do those numbers mean to our movement, to, to the big vision paper, um, and how we can also proceed? Um, yeah, the, the, the study is a really powerful one. It, um, it concluded that in North America and 
what they let me back up. What they did was compile every study that's ever been done. Uh, so it was a study of studies. And for North America, 95% of the studies they relied on were from the United States. Uh, and they found in North America, $840 billion a year was spent on healthcare problems caused by ACEs. See, that's another example why we need to use ACEs. The study didn't say trauma, it said ACEs. Um, the federal government pays 40% of all healthcare in the cost of this country. That means the federal government is spending over $300 billion a year uh, providing healthcare services to problems caused by ACEs. Um, imagine being able to reduce the federal budget by even half of that. Uh, it, it's bigger <laughs> than the entire healthcare budget. <clears throat> so um, the, the study has a powerful implications for demonstrating to Congress that if they're really interested in reducing healthcare costs, which I think they are, uh, there's a way to do it. The problem is it requires an upfront investment. And this has always been a problem. Congress doesn't have any mechanism for saying, if we spend $100 million today, it'll save us a billion dollars in 10 years. Uh, instead, if we spend $100 million today, it counts towards the cap uh, that every Senate and House committee, Appropriations Committee has, and they don't get credit for what's going to happen in the future. It's really a, an awfully short-sighted approach. No business would operate that way. If a business knew it could make a billion dollars in 10 years by investing $100 million today, they would go ahead and jump at it. But Congress doesn't do that. So it's going to be a challenge to find a way inside this very screwy budget process Congress has to get Congress to lay out the upfront money needed to produce the savings down the road. Uh, they operate on a one-year, two-year basis. Um, Laura Porter, uh, one of the great minds in the trauma area has been talking about using social impact bonds mm -hmm. where you actually get foundations of businesses to invest. So they will put up the hundred million dollars to reduce ACEs and they will share in the billion dollar savings it produces. Uh, the concept of impact bonds has been around a while. It's been tried in a few ways. Uh, it's never really taken off because it's too hard generally to predict what savings will occur in the social services health area. But with ACES, we have pretty good predictors uh, that if you put money, for example, into reducing suspensions in schools, you're going to uh, actually produce those results. And here's how much it's going to save. You know, the special ed is a perfect example. Uh, there's a school right here in Montgomery County called the Lurie Academy that provides uh, special education to the worst of the worst in, in the Washington area of kids with special ed. And they give them a very intensive program for um, five years. And then they migrate them into the regular school system. And 80% of the students that they migrate into the school system uh, are successful without the need for any special ed programs. And we know that special ed costs, I don't know, eight or 10 times as much as a, what the cost for a regular student is. So investing money in the first five years has proven to be a way to save a huge amount of money down the road. And we now have enough data to actually, I think, allow investors to say, I'm going to get a decent return on my investment. So I think it's an area that needs to be explored because I'm skeptical that Congress will figure out a way to make the investment in, in trauma-informed programs that uh, will produce huge savings that will reduce that $800 billion figure. Uh, 
at least in the near future. So it's going to take some creative approaches by entities outside of uh, Congress to uh, at least get the ball rolling. Right. And I, you know, one of the common um, sayings in education is that a dollar spent in the first five years saves, you know, seven or eight dollars mm. later on. And so I think that that's a great place to start. Um, it, it isn't hard to think about how that $800 billion number, while that is so massive, can accumulate when you look at the opioid epidemic and just how ravaging that is, right? And then you see the ACEs study and you find that people with four or more ACEs are 1,030% more likely to partake in <laughs> drug usage. And this, you know, it's a 700% increase with the same population for alcoholism and smoking cigarettes. Um, you know, it, it really is just what I'm learning from you is that it really is just about getting started somewhere and then building momentum from there, right? We have to be strategic. We have to make sure that that first investment is going to pay dividends back. But exactly. But we've seen with education, huge results that mm -hmm. would excite the education committee for sure. And I'm sure other legislators who do want to see enable workforce and a capable workforce and better parenting methods. Um, you know, so I, I, I love the idea of starting with education and sort of building out. Um, is there anything that we can do to remove, forget about the trauma informed movement for one second. One of the things that you brought up a few minutes ago was how Congress works in such short cycles that it almost doesn't allow <laughs> plans to fully blossom. That may not be true for every legislation that's passed. There's a lot of laws that have long lifespans that make a great impact. But so frequently we see, you know, the two years of Congress people that they're elected in between elections, um, or at least for House members, that, you know, it, it's, it's so short that they have to be worried about getting reelected, which then kind of puts off people from making long-term changes because they need to make a short-term change. There aren't a lot of Congressman Cummings who have been there for so long that they have created that long-term drive. And so is there a way to, you know, besides just being elected to Congress and doing it differently, is there a way to sort of create another paradigm shift as well to understand that we as a society are being hurt by the short-term patchwork policies that exist and we need to start putting into place policies, legislation, practices that address long-term inequities and outcomes? The answer is yes, and, and the example is the opioid uh, epidemic. Uh, it built up so much public concern and such outcry that Congress, notwithstanding all the budget limits, set, set aside $6 billion didn't mm. take the money out of other programs. It just took it out of the long-term debt and said, we are going to create a pot of money, $6 billion, to address the opioid epidemic. Unfortunately, the programs they put in place had nothing in it about prevention, nothing in it about resilience, nothing in it to try and deal with the underlying trauma. That's the cause of it, mainly focused on uh, helping people who are addicted to survive uh, and get treatment. But the answer is what you need is a, a national groundswell uh, that creates so much pressure on Congress that they'll, they'll ignore these constraints. <clears throat> so I think <clears throat> what we need is to get every one of the thousands of trauma-informed, uh, passionate people around the country working for 
local coalitions, working for healthcare facilities, working for schools that have learned about uh, trauma and ACE study, uh, all singing in a, a choir, singing the same song sheet uh, about how we need to deal with trauma, how we have the answer to so many of our problems, uh, and how we need to put resources into it. So I think that's my mind is the most effective way to overcome the barriers that exist now uh, is to create this huge national movement. Uh, one of the analogies I came up with is we've got all these people around the country who are glowing with excitement about what trauma can do, but they're all in their own little area. If we connected them into a grid, uh, and so they were all lighting up each other. You know, the whole country would be bright with trauma-informed uh, energy. Mm -hmm. uh, so I have this picture in my head of a map of the United States just bright with light from people uh, educating their elected officials about trauma. Uh, but that's what's needed, however, whatever kind of analogy. Um, yeah. What we need is the kind of groundswell that created uh, the $6 billion for opioids, um, created the uh, anti-smoking movement, uh, the AIDS movement. Uh, there are enough models out there. It needs to happen. That's a great transition for our conversation to sort of lead into what I ultimately wanted to finish with, which is the work that you've been doing in that small working group of developing a strategic plan to begin the campaign that might take, you know, we recognize that it may take several years, but beginning to create the structure to promote a groundswell to then influence legislators, create a trauma caucus, which in the long run could create an input comprehensive trauma-informed legislation. Um, you know, I, I love your analogy. I, I think more, I, I'm thinking more of like a neural network sort of model where each person is like a neuron. But if we can create that communication between synapses, and I'm not a neuroscientist, so I may 100% right on this, but you know, that's what makes a brain work. It allows the brain to communicate with the body and lead to movement. Uh, so I love the analogy. Um, but, you know, I, I would love to, you know, we're working on a strategy with a number of different people to create that groundswell. And you in particular kind of helped us move into momentum and move into motion as a group with this big vision paper that you wrote for us. Um, and you know, you touched on it a bit. You talked about the four different pieces of what legislation would need. It, it needs primary intervention or primary prevention, early intervention, resilience building and treatment. But that big vision paper that you typed up is, is much more than just those four points. Um, so I would love to just open the floor and hear a little bit more from from your mouth about you know what is the ultimate goal of this big vision paper what were your thoughts writing it uh you know the floor is yours okay uh what actually started the process was reading dr nadine burke harris's incredibly beautiful moving book called the deepest well about her own uh, process of learning about trauma and, and how it changed the way she practices. And at the very end, in the epilogue, she says, uh, it's now 2040, I'm a grandma, uh, I'm no longer practicing. Uh, we've reduced ACEs by 60% uh, as a result of legislation Congress passed in 2020. And I read that and I said, what a beautiful vision, but there's no way Congress is going to pass that kind of legislation without the bandwagon, that you're not going to get them to do something as comprehensive and momentous as that uh, unless they're, they're pushed to do it by a huge groundswell from, from the grassroots. So then I started thinking, well, what do we need to get there? First thing we need is a mantra. 
something real simple that can be repeated over and over again. And since I don't know if I'll still be here in 20 years, I decided to shorten it <laughs> and say, uh, our mantra should be, let's reduce trauma by 50% in 10 years, or reduce ACEs by 50% in 10 years. Uh, something measurable, something that's easy to get across. And then from there it became, but how do you accomplish that? Well, you, you accomplish it through the four, working in the four areas, reducing not just ACEs, but the causes and effects of ACEs. Uh, Dr. Burke Harris was thinking just of reducing ACEs in future generations, but uh, my mantra says, let's reduce the causes and effects of ACEs uh, to reduce the number of suspensions, to reduce the number of people becoming uh, subject to opiate use disorder, to reduce the number of people being incarcerated since 60 some odd percent of all the people incarcerated suffered multiple ACEs. Uh, so the idea is to put together a program that one, prevents the next generation from suffering ACEs, but also helps the present generation to learn how to deal with their trauma uh, so it doesn't drive them to, to negative social and, and health behaviors, uh, doesn't drive them to drugs, doesn't drive them to smoking, doesn't drive them to overeating. Um, and then third is we need to uh, help those people who suffered trauma who were in prison. We need to help them uh, provide trauma-informed peer counseling so that when they get out of jail, they uh, don't end up back in a year the way 60-some-odd percent do. Uh, so the idea was to construct a big vision that would build on the mantra of reducing ACEs by 50% in in 10 years to show that it was doable. And it's still very much a work in progress. I, I by mm -hmm. any, no means am I an expert on any of this. Uh, I just take information other people bring and plug it in. But uh, we've got, we've got the start of what such a comprehensive piece of legislation would look like. Uh, the goal is to put together a vision paper that describes the comprehensive legislation, but not in the form of legislation itself, and then start educating Congress. Because right now, the legislation being implemented are very narrow. And if I were a congressperson, didn't know much about NACES, I would think this is a one-off issue. Well, I, I passed this bill and we'll address trauma in Head Start, and then I'm done. And they need to see the big picture. They need to understand how each of these little pieces of legislation are in fact a piece of a much larger whole. So we wanna give them a picture of the whole, and then they can start working to gradually put the pieces in place, almost like a jigsaw puzzle. Uh, it may take a few pieces at a time, but at least they'll understand when they're putting a small piece in place, it's building to something much bigger. Right. So, the, the, so the goal is, is to give them a full understanding of how much a comprehensive trauma-informed program can it be achieved, can accomplish in this country, and what that would look like. That's great. And just, you know, you to add on to the point that you made about taking other people's knowledge and using that, that's very much what I do as well. Um, you know, two pieces that I think we will over time integrate are, you know, we've talked a lot about ACEs being adverse childhood experiences, but one of the CTIP board members, Wendy Ellis, came up with the pair of ACEs, which also discusses adverse community environments. And certainly adverse childhood experiences and the results of those feed into what become adverse community environments and they sort of perpetuate together, right? And I just wanted to bring that up because when I first heard about the pair of aces and saw the metaphor tree where the adverse childhood experiences are the branches and the leaves, but the adverse community environments are the roots and the stem 
that sort of are supposed to nourish the tree, but if a tree isn't being nourished by the soil, it's not going to live up to its full potential. And then the other piece is uh, what Marlo Nash shared with us yesterday, um, a piece written by Ellen Galinsky about shifting the language from trauma-informed to asset-informed, which is very much what I think also BCR, Building Community Resilience, in addition to work that Bob Dopelt does, beginning to make that paradigm shift to a more positive way of looking at the movement, right? It's not just about helping those who are trauma-impacted. Well, it is, but it's also about building resilience and skills to mitigate the effects of the adversity that we all face during our lives. Life is tough. And to build those soft skills that help people overcome hardships while also reducing the obvious hardships that we can begin to sort of mitigate, such as seclusion methods, uh, community violence, e more community violence might be a little bit more deep and in the rough, but we were certainly talking about how in education there's some low hanging fruits that we can start working with and beginning to just make progress from there. Um, so I just wanted to bring up both of those points because I think they're, you know, they're, they were some of the articles that got me excited. Some of the ideas that helped me rethink what I've been learning and what we've been trying to work on. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that, but I caution that addressing the community trauma is a much more expensive yeah. and difficult concept where we don't have all of the evidence of, of success that we do, with, for example, with reducing suspensions in school, so that we need to start with the, with the low-hanging fruit and not try and tackle the larger community issue right now, uh, but let's prove what we can accomplish just by uh, addressing uh, things like suspension and and prove it works and then build to it gradually. Right. Uh, I, again, I, I don't want to make Congress take such a big bite that they'll choke on it. Yeah. Um, as I said that, I actually heard that, heard what I said and started to rethink it, but I am actually glad that I made that miss not mistake necessarily, but sort of misstated what I was trying to say because that's exactly what, that's the balance that we're working through, right? We, we do want to pay mind to all the issues in the world, but it is all about, you know, cutting small enough bites that people can comfortably eat the whole dish. And mm -hmm. I think that that ended up accidentally being a good illustration of exactly that thought process. Um, you know, that we've been talking through for about an hour now. Um, mm -hmm. do, we're reaching the end of the time that we had together, but, um, you know, is, is there anything else that you want to say? Um, anything um, you want to share? I hope that this isn't the last time we talk on the pod no. together, but uh, for now. Uh, no, one, I just wanted to thank you for what you've been able to contribute. You've done some phenomenal data research, like showing how 600,000 people a year die from ACE-related causes. I don't think that kind of figure has ever been collected before. So uh, you're just a great addition to the team, and we uh, really appreciate what you've done. It's been my dream since I was a young kid uh, to make the world a better place. And the opportunity to work with you, uh, Jeff, Marlowe, Sandy, Diane, everybody has been such an amazing step. Uh, sometimes I look up in the mirror or wake up and it's hard to believe that I'm 25 and get to be a part of these conversations. Um, it, it's truly my pleasure. And just for what it's worth, uh, the figure is close to to 650,000 people that die each year. It's a little bit over 600,000 people. Um, but I, I certainly appreciate what you said. It, it's my pleasure to get to be a part of it. Yeah.
Okay. Well, uh, you're, you're the next generation, so uh, you're the guy who's going to have to carry the ball across the finish line. So glad you're there. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you, Dan. You're welcome. All right. I'll Bye. Talk to you. Are we? Okay. Yeah. So I think that it's still recording. I, I genuinely appreciated that conversation with Dan. Uh, the conclusion that I typed up prior to the conversation, which I'll read to just kind of round this whole thing out, is that during the first episode of Press On, when I interviewed Sandy Bloom and Diane Wagonhalls, Sandy brought up the need to answer the question, what is the vision? What can the world look like in the future with trauma-informed care, trauma-sensitive practices, and a greater appreciation for the role that adversity plays in all of our lives. Fortunately, Dan has taken the lead to begin really piecing together what this vision could be. There is a need to build resilience for populations to overcome adversity, from abuse to climate change to terrorism and many, many more, as well as increased funding necessary to provide the mental health services necessary to accommodate the need our society has. Dan, who's no longer on the pod with me, as we continue to develop this comprehensive vision, I hope that we will have the opportunity to catch up and discuss the progress we are making more. I want to thank Dan very much for taking the time to discuss all of this with me, and I want to thank him as well for all of the work that he's done for Native American tribes as a young student coming out of law school, or as a young attorney coming out of law school, as well as everything that he's done as CTIP's pro bono um, advisor. Thank you to our listeners as well for tuning into this episode of Press On. Keep on making the world a better place. I hope to talk to you all soon.